Hey guys, I'm gonna be reading this week, like I was supposed to be doing last week, and then I forgot. <laughs> My bad. Okay, so the reading comes from Matthew 6, chapters 9 through 34. Um, do not lay up for yourself. Uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor dust nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there uh, there your heart will be also. The eye is in uh, the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you and dark, uh, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you eat, uh, sorry, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will drink, nor about your body, nor what you will put on. It is not life, uh, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, uh, are you not of more value than they? And which of you? By being anxious, can add a single hour uh, to his uh, to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass uh, of the field, uh, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not? Uh, much more clothe you, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for, uh, for the day is its own trouble. Um, I'm going to pray real quick. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day and for this time um, that we can come and gather and rest and just learn about you. I pray that uh, your presence will be here during this hour and that you will bless uh, what Sid has prepared for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Wow. It's like full service. Thank you. All right. Hello. Oh, man. <laughs> it's good to be home at RUF. Uh, so glad that uh, you all could be here. Uh, are we, we're really close. We're really close to Easter break. Um, can you feel it? You're close. You're really close. So um, I appreciate you being here. I know it's a tough time of year. Um, seems like every break has to be earned at Davidson College. So that's I'm sure some of you are doing some last-minute stuff. But I appreciate you taking an hour out with us or so. So just so you don't know, just if you don't know, my name is Sid Druin. Uh, I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, known as RUF. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all and this campus. And we mean you all wherever you are and whoever you are. 
And we take that really seriously. We don't want to be uh, a place for one kind of person. We want to be for every kind of person. That means no matter what personal background you're from, no matter what scene you would call yourself um, a part of on campus, we're really glad you're here. And we hope you feel welcomed. Um, And we mean that also even spiritually. So um, I imagine a lot of you are in different spaces, but we want you to know that we're really glad you're here no matter what space you feel like you're in. Uh, Whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or maybe somewhere in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here. Um, I say that every week, and I mean it every week. So thanks for coming. Uh, The other thing is just to welcome a few guests in the back. Um, One of them will be very obvious, and one of them will be easier uh, to recognize as well. Uh, Jonathan and his son are back there. They've they've brought some snacks for us. They're representing North Cross Church. Say hello to them um, when you get a chance. Uh, Heard some gasps, Uh, so that's good. Uh, Also, if you're new, we're just really glad you're here. Uh, we really want uh, you to feel like this is a, a safe space for you to come and to, to feel welcomed and encouraged. And again, please get to know some people, and I pray that some people get to know you. Okay, so thanks for taking the time and the risk, and let's jump into the large group topic, which we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Matthew's chapters 5 through 7 uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. And I've said this before, uh, but I think these chapters have a worldwide and world historical fame. Uh, and that kind of track record makes this section of scripture worth the studying uh, as, as to every other parts of scripture too, but especially this semester because I think that it's essential Christian reading. And what do I mean by that? I mean that historically and geographically, every time period, every culture, every generation since it was spoken has looked to the Sermon on the Mount for their take on Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. But, and I say this again every week and I mean every week, whether you call yourself Christian or not, we tend to read this book wrong. I bet even several weeks into the series, it's still hard for us not to read it like another just got to get this done list. Another list that we maybe write on a sticky note on top of our Davidson official planner, or maybe it's an Outlook calendar line item. Whatever it is, we tend to think of what Jesus is teaching here and elsewhere as something to get done and it somehow, sometimes gets crossed off, but a lot of times it just sort of sits there and stares at us. So, um, but I really think Jesus is asking us to view this passage, to view his ministry uh, differently, to take a deep breath, and to see it as an invitation. Jesus is asking us to, to recast our vision, to see our lives in the world with spiritual imagination. So that's why our large group series title, Beyond Good Advice, colon, because we got to do the subtitle, Seeing Our Lives with Spiritual Imagination. Okay, so that's where, that's what we've been up to. And just to kind of catch you up, if you've caught us midstream or if you've been following along, this week we're finishing up chapter six of Matthew, two thirds of the way there by the end of this week. Um, And the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, we begin in chapter five, we started looking at like what it looks like. Jesus' vision for our character, then our cultural influence, and then what our righteousness would look like. And then in chapter 6, we kind of pivoted with Jesus, and he addressed our private spiritual lives, like things like prayer and fasting and charity and giving. Um, Whether we think we have a spiritual life or private spiritual life or not, Jesus has addressed it and addressed us. And then tonight in the last half of chapter 6, we're looking at Jesus speaking to our often public 
um, especially economic lives, should be fun. Um, so we're going to look at that together. Uh, but before we do, would you pray with me and for me so we could open ourselves up to the, what this passage has to teach us? Father, um, I confess that this passage is hard. Um, it's hard for me. Uh, I struggle with this. Many students in this room struggle with what we're going to talk about. And I pray that you'd be kind, but you'd be firm, that you would help us to see ourselves honestly, give us the courage to look, uh, but also give us the courage to see you honestly, to see what you're up to in this world, to not roll our eyes, to not sigh, to not think, oh, that's so yesterday. But I pray that you would really show us what it looks like that you're at work in our world, that you're at work in this room, that you use... um, under the sea-themed carpet and fluorescent lights uh, to do your work. And I pray that you would encourage us as we uh, look at your word and that you, Jesus, most of all, be high and lifted up and more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So as some of you know, uh, I like to read fiction, not for class, because I'm no longer in class, thankfully. Uh, no offense. Uh, I, <laughs> so I call my desire for fiction, my enjoyment of fiction, somewhere between a hobby and an unpaid passion, which some people call it avocation, not a vocation. Okay? And of all the books I've read in my entire life, I would count one of my favorite characters as I admit an odd choice. I'm speaking, of course, of Mr. Toad and the Wind in the Willows. I don't know. Some of you are like, who is this guy? Fully unfamiliar. Uh, The Wind in the Willows was written by Kenneth Graham, roughly 1908, the very height of Edwardian England in the British Empire. So naturally, this book features a cast of woodland creatures who live as aristocratic gentlemen. So I think you've got to imagine their picture with me. Moles and river rats and badgers and toads who enjoy leisurely walks, uh, what, what Kenneth Graham calls rambles, and river boating, also called punting. Uh, I'm not sure why. And they have houses with smoking rooms and parlors, and of course they wear knickers and pocket washes and starch shirts with tweed jackets. That's sort of the vision that I want you to have for this. Um, And into this absurdity comes my favorite character, Mr. Toad. Mr. Toad. He's a young, rich, reckless gentleman toad with a strange passion. But I really feel like before I can introduce him anymore, I'm just going to cast a scene. I'm going to retell a scene from Wind in the Willows that best describes Mr. Toad at his best. Okay, ready? So Toad and Mole, also called Moley, and River Rat, also called Ratty, are walking along the side of the road. Again, what Kenneth Graham calls a ramble. Uh, with, with Toad's newest extravagant purchase, a caravan wagon. Okay, and they're walking along. They just picnicked. Toad had promised the world and underdelivered as usual. And so Ratty and Molly had gone shopping and gotten the picnic provisions. And uh, they're walking back from this this pleasant picnic. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there becomes there comes a metallic poop poop sound of a motor car horn. And the friends all of a sudden are covered head to toe in dust. And, and they're forced to jump out of the way of this careening car into the ditch. And then all the, the caravan wagon rolls backwards and the horse falls down and it's a huge scene. And, and so of course, Rat jumps up hopping mad, yelling at the driver. Mole rushes over to calm down the horse. And then Mr. Toad. 
Uh, Kenneth Graham best, perhaps best, describes Mr. Toad in state. Here we go. <laughs> Toad sat straight down in the middle of the dusty road. His legs stretched out before him and stared fixedly in the direction of the disappearing motor car. He breathed short. His face wore a placid, satisfied expression. And at intervals, he faintly murmured, Poop, poop. Glorious, stirring sight, murmured Toad, never offering to move. The poetry of motion. The real way to move. The only way to travel. Here today and the next week, tomorrow, villages skipped, towns, cities jumped, always somebody else's horizon. Oh, bliss. Oh, poop, poop. Oh my, oh my. And I think, to think I never knew, went on Toad in his dreamy monotone, all those wasted years that lie behind me. I never knew, I never dreamt, but now, now that I know, now that I finally realize, oh, what flowery track spreads before me henceforth, what dust clouds spring up to me as I speed on my reckless way. What carts shall I fling carelessly into the ditch in the wake of my magnificent onset? Horrid little carts, common carts, canary-colored carts. What a great speech. <laughs> and this moment leads Mr. Toad's possession, his new craze, and all of a sudden he's entered into this new craze for automobiles. He's obsessed. Uh, which in turn leads Toad, we don't get to see this scene, we just hear about it, to purchase and crash seven cars <laughs> and to be hospitalized three times for injuries. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And after the intervention of his friends and a prison sentence, Toad still manages, <laughs> true story, he still manages to steal two different motor cars only to race and crash both of them successfully. <laughs> Again, what a chap. Okay. So I was discussing my love, our mutual love, really, for Mr. Toad with a British friend of mine, and he laughingly called Mr. Toad a rascal. <laughs> rascal. And I thought, that's so British, to call someone a rascal. Uh, but then I also thought, the more I thought about it, the more rascal really seemed appropriate for Mr. Toad. And then I started thinking about myself and the fact that I think rascal is a great description of my inner self when I get carried away with something. Okay. Like, something that I'm really obsessed about. And it seems like my heart has some sort of, I guess, I don't know, for lack of a better word, inner rascal. And I think you guys do too. And this is maybe why I enjoy Mr. Toad so much. But I also can't help to get a little frustrated with Mr. Toad when I read the book, or maybe you've seen the Disney movie. The fact that he harms and causes so much heartache to the people he loves, to himself, and to many other innocent people... Mr. Toad is this simultaneously very sympathetic and very ridiculous character. Uh, because he's a caricature, right? He's this funny mirror of our hearts. Toad's life in times is a children's book exaggeration of how what we treasure can quite suddenly take hold of our hearts and drive our lives in shocking directions. Okay? In our passions tonight, Jesus is addressing our inner rascal. Okay? That the way that what we treasure can steer our lives out of control and into anxiety. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, Jesus is inviting us to get very honest with ourselves and ask a few hard questions, such as, what do we treasure? What do we treasure? What does, where does what we treasure drive our lives? Where does what we treasure drive our lives? And... 
how could God change our treasure and our life direction? How could God change our treasure and our life direction? Okay. Another more specific way of putting Jesus' questions is how the outline in your handout addresses the passage before you. Okay. And that's just three different questions. More precise, more specific, maybe. A little bit more emotional. First, in verses 19 through 24, you'll see Jesus asks us, why are you so anxious? Jesus is asking us, why are you so anxious? That is, what is anxiety, or what is anxiety really about? Second, verses 25 through 34, Jesus asks us, how are you so anxious? How are you anxious? What are we anxious about? And third, and finally, in a bunch of different verses, 21, 26, 30, 32, 33, Jesus asks us, What calms your anxiety? Who can begin to free you from anxiety? As usual, and this is shocking, we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to work our way through the passage. So let's begin at verses 19 through 24. Why are we so anxious? Or why are we anxious at all? What I love about the topic of anxiety is I don't have to make the case for its relevance. Pretty straightforward. (laughs) Anxiety affects almost everyone in this room to lesser or greater degrees, and societally is on the uprise. It's having a kick. Okay? According to a recent University of Virginia psychological study, all you have to do is slow down enough to sit in a room by yourself with your thoughts, and these psychological experts say just 6 to 15 minutes later, the vast majority of the people who do this experiment will report unpleasant feelings due to anxiety. The vast majority of people cannot sit in a room by themselves for 6 to 15 minutes without interruption, without feeling anxiety. But though we know it inside, we feel it inside, and we see it in other people, what exactly is anxiety? And what if, like sex, anxiety is actually not about anxiety? What if it's about something bigger than anxiety? What if anxiety is a symptom of something greater beneath it? What if anxiety is a signpost that points to something more substantial. In verses 19 through 21, Jesus is suggesting that anxiety is actually about what we treasure in our hearts and our minds. What we treasure is what we supremely value. It's what we prize, it's what we privilege, it's what we prioritize, it's what we trust in for future hopes, it's what we look to for present tense peace. It's what we care about deeply, It's what we delight in richly. In the words of pastor and author Tim Keller, if I have this, this is how what we treasure makes us think. What we treasure fills our hearts with beauty and value, and it makes us think this way. If I have this, everything's worth it. If I can get it and hold on to it, it's all worth it. And I'm worth it. But verses 19 through 20 tell us we tend to get anxious we kind of feel restless or afraid or depressed we get anxious because we are treasuring the wrong things oftentimes more often than not consciously or unconsciously we treasure things that moth and rust can destroy and that thieves can steal that is whether our treasure is a person or a thing it is impermanent it's earthly Okay? And therefore, subject to the destructive force 
of circumstances and of time and of other people. So anxiety has something to do with treasuring the wrong things, but what in the heck do verses 22 through 23 have to do with anything? (laughs) How do they add a better understanding of what it looks like to treasure something or what it looks like to be anxious? I mean, what's this about like eyes like lamps and good eyes and bad eyes and bodies being filled with light and darkness? According to several commentators, there's a very clear way to read this, a very simple way to read, read this, and a more subtle, uh, more specific way to read this. And I'm going to give you both. And then um, one, on the one hand, uh, this commentator suggests that if your eyes aren't clear and they aren't, aren't taking in light, your body won't be able to navigate a room. That's kind of common sense, right? If I can't see objects in front of me, I'm going to hit some knees and I'm going to scrape some elbows even if the light is fully, is fully flush in the room. But commentators also suggest that a bad eye can mean in the Greek this word kakos, which means evil or even stingy. That idea of this bad or stingy eye can twist the way that we move our body in this life through time, slowly but surely in ways that are hidden from us because it's our eyes after all, Right? So let me put it a little bit differently. The more nuanced reading of verse 23 suggests that Jesus is saying this. Greed and materialism are at work in our lives and they're blinding. They're blinding. But because this treasuring of money or possessions is blindingly hard for us to see, I think it's appropriate to ask a few diagnostic questions, even for poor college students and arguably poor campus minister okay so here are a few questions that we need to ask do you ask or get asked how you will make or spend your money does anyone ever ask you that question do you ever ask yourself how you will make or spend money what do you tend to spend too much money on or what exactly are you saving up for finally this is the most indicting question what do you think you would be happy with just a little bit more? A little bit more of what? You see, Jesus is inviting us to question everything. He's asking us even to question down to the level of what we think will make us happy. So if verses 20 through 24 suggest anxiety comes at least in part from treasuring the wrong things, and verse 24, verses 22 and 23 suggest we're often blind to the things that we actually treasure. See this? Verse 24 suggests that this whole issue is about what we worship, or in the words of the passage, what we serve. Jesus calls the things that we falsely treasure mammon. This is a capitalized, proper noun, God version of the Aramaic word that simply means possessions, property, and wealth. And while I have no doubt that anxiety and nervousness and worry has something to do with our biochemistry and our brains, and probably also has something to do with our family environments, some of the difficult aspects of that has caused that, Anxiety also has this very spiritual, definite aspect that's definitely spiritual. Okay? So we have an aspect of anxiety that's definitely spiritual. The very things that we treasure, okay, those very things that we treasure, we treasure them because they promise to work for us. 
to get us what we want. Deep friendships, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, good grades, acceptance, a success, job, sleep. Maybe those are the very things that you do treasure. But regardless, we have a strategy that begins to demand that we work for it, not that it works for us. To truly get what we want, we eventually have to do the shameful. To keep what we want, we have to become unrecognizable to ourselves at times. We see the process of how this treasure can become our master. Again, in my favorite character, Mr. Toad. Okay, Mr. Toad, the comic version of our inner selves, lies his way out of his friend's intervention, flees temporary house arrest until, while still on the run, Toad hears the all-too-familiar poop-poop sound of an approaching motor car. According to Kenneth Green, Toad has to hold onto the leg of a table to conceal his overmastering emotion. Then he tells himself, there cannot be any harm in me just looking at it. And so Toad wanders over to someone else's car. Then when he's there at the motor car, Toad says to himself, I wonder, I wonder if this sort of car starts and how it starts. And the next moment, hardly knowing how it came about, he had found, he had, he had, he had hold on, oh, sorry. That, the, that next moment, hardly knowing how it came about, he found he had hold of the handle and was turning it. And as the familiar sound broke, the old passion seized on Toad and completely mastered him, body and soul. As if in a dream, he found himself somehow seated in the driver's seat. As if in a dream, he pulled the lever and swung the car around the yard and out through the archway. And as if in a dream, all sense of right and wrong, all fear of obvious consequences seemed temporarily suspended. He increased his pace, and the car devoured the street and let forth on the high road through the open country. He was only conscious that he was towed once more, towed at his best and his highest, towed the terror, towed the traffic queller, the lord of the load trail, before whom all must give way or be smitten into nothingness in everlasting night. He chanted as he flew. The car responded with a, uh, a sonorous drone. The miles were eaten up under him as he sped he knew not whither, fulfilling his instincts, living his hour, reckless of what might come to him. Guys, <laughs> that's a children's book. That's amazing. P.S. And then the next scene, Toad, we did cuts, there's a, there's a cut forward. The next scene is Mr. Toad's sentencing. <laughs> 20 years in prison for stealing a vehicle reckless endangerment and resisting arrest <laughs> okay so perhaps the fantastic Mr. Toad's downward spiral into crime seems a little bit far-fetched to you that's not my life Sid that's a fictional children's book character but yeah fair enough but Jesus brings our anxiety closer to home to where and how we live in verses 25 through 34 after explaining why we're anxious, how, he now explains how we're anxious, which is point two. Verse 25, along with verse 31, gives us this big picture look at what we're actually anxious about. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Here, Jesus points out another cause of our anxiety. We're not just anxious because we, tr- we treasure temporary things with eternal significance. 
We're also anxious because the things that we need, things like food and drink and clothes and lifespan, these things that we need are outside of our control. And that makes us anxious. So this too is how we can grow anxious about our anxiety. Do you see this meta process that can happen? Because anxiety can become a self-destructive state we think we should be able to control. But we can't out-control a control issue. And verses 26 through 34 neatly unpack where we feel most out of control by addressing our anxiety over food and drink, verse 26, what we put on our bodies, verses 28 through 30, and our anxiety over the length and timing of the future, verses 27 and 34. So we're going to look at those in brief. Jesus begins his description of where we're anxious about by zeroing in on birds, of all things. The birds that don't have a means of long-term food production, a.k.a. they don't farm. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather, yet God feeds them. They eat every single day, multiple meals a day. And most of us, maybe not all of us in the room, don't have this particular anxiety over where the next meal will come from, like the birds could or probably likely the first century audience that Jesus was speaking to would have had. Our anxiety looks less like where the next meal will come from and more like where the next meal will come from in one to five years with a psychology degree in a major mid-Atlantic U.S. city. It's the issue of security is what we're talking about. This is where our anxiety gets messed up and gets tangled into knots. We fear failure whether that's living in a parent's basement, a job at Starbucks, or just doing something we don't love every day. We crave safety, the assurance of a certain amount of money or income, so this uncontrollable world can be controlled somehow by a stockpile of savings. But the birds teach us what we already know, don't they? We can't control bad bosses. We can't stop expensive health care, clearly. And we can't turn around a slow job market. Then Jesus moves on to another common natural scene, glorious wildflowers, to describe our anxiety about clothing. Like with food, our anxiety about clothing is not so immediate and more about what clothing represents. It's an issue of beauty or social status. We fear walking into a room and being undesirable or unimportant. Underdressed for success at the interview. Or overdressed for too little or too much attention at the party. Not in the scene, but out of the scene. We crave significance. How I look on the outside can make the case for getting to know me on the inside can get me access to certain people in certain places I really want to be with and be in. But like the birds, the lilies and the grass of the field teach us what we already know again. We can't control death. We fundamentally cannot change our body shape. We can't make people like us. And the more we try to make people like us, the less they'll like us. And so it goes. And finally, in verses 27 and 34, Jesus addresses the anxiety behind our worry about security and significance. 
the anxiety behind the anxiousness. We're anxious about a future that is uncertain and uncontrollable. We can't add a single guaranteed hour to our lives, no matter what the health regimen. Verse 27. And we also cannot change the circumstances of tomorrow by doing something today. According to verse 34, we just don't have that kind of direct control. High-achieving colleges like Davidson are especially future-focused, right? After all, you have been taught from a young age to kindly resist the one Oreo of the present in order to receive the two Oreos of the future. But scientist and philosopher Blaise Pascal points out, we never actually live, but only hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be happy. I'll read that again. We never actually live, but we only hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be happy. In other words, we're so busy counting on and worrying over the future, we miss out on the only guaranteed time and place to live and be happy. The present. The present today, right now, is the only certain time to see and to feel and to act upon God. Although God oversees and he knows and he works in all times and all places, we can only experience him, hint him at work in our lives, in our world, in the present tense moment. Delight and enjoyment can only happen in the present. And this present tense reorientation swings us to our third and final point, which some of you have been waiting for for a long time. What calms our anxieties? Who can, be, who can begin to free us from our anxiety? Here's the thing. The reason that Jesus has been agonizingly specific about why and how we're anxious is to prove that he, Jesus, really gets it. He really understands. Listen to the way that Helmut Thilicke puts it. He describes Jesus in the mid-19... Sorry, he describes... Uh, John Stott describes Helmut Thilicke talking about Jesus in the mid-1940s in Stuttgart, Germany, just after World War II. This pastor reminds his audience of the all-too-recent anxiety of air raids and fire bombings. And then he says this on this passage. Nevertheless, I think we must stop and listen when this man, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points us to the carefreeness of the birds and the lilies. Were not, the, were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? You see, God intimately understands our world. He knows that sparrows fall to the ground dead all the time. The lilies are trampled. They're cut down. They're used for fragrant, fragrant fuel for fires. And that homes and lives can be stolen by explosive acts of violence. He gets it. After all, God came and lived among us. In the poorest of conditions, the most wanting of food, the most wanting of drink, the most wanting of clothing, and, as Tillichie puts it, in the full, ever-growing awareness of his future violent death on tomorrow's cross. So he, Jesus, gives us real-world advice for our very real anxieties. In verse 21, he tells us not just to see where our heart is, 
but it changed its location by changing what we treasure. But how exactly do we change what we treasure? That's sort of what feels like the riddle of this passage. <laughs> Again, Jesus is so aware of this difficulty, and he gives us this advice, and it's summarized in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Jesus knows that we often seek first those things. Security, significance, certainty, from unpredictable and disposable things like food and drink and clothes and tomorrow. He gets it. So Jesus suggests a full tilt heart change. Stop playing God and let God be God. After all, God knows what we need and has the actual power and direct control to give us the physical and emotional things we need today and tomorrow. We don't. I don't. Jesus also knows the only way you and I can or will change is that what we seek first and what we treasure at a heart level, the only way we'll change any of those things is exactly why he came to earth and laid his life down for us. You see, in Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells his people, he tells us, you are my treasured possession. You're my treasured possession. 2,000 years ago in modern Israel, God stripped himself of the ultimate security and significance as well as the ultimate safety and status. Jesus left heaven, he left his father's side, and he came to earth. Then after a life of physical poverty, Jesus was again stripped naked of all material possessions. He had left down to his very garments, his clothing, and he was stripped of his emotional relationship with his father. He was forsaken, abandoned. All so that Jesus' heart could be where his treasure, where we were. Jesus treasures me and you so much that he went to his death on the cross thinking, if I have Sid, everything's worth it. If I can get you and hold on to you, it's all worth it. Whereas everything else that we treasure demands our absolute sacrifice to get it. Jesus is the treasure who gave his absolute sacrifice to get us. That kind of king... And that kind of kingdom is worth putting first, is worth serving. The king who serves us, we serve. So what does it look like to treasure Jesus in the face of our anxieties? Two quick pieces of advice. I know I'm borderline going long, but I'm done. First, stop listening to the rushing river of your anxieties and start speaking to it. I know that sounds crazy talk, literally. Move your heart by speaking to it. You have to interrupt this primal scream of anxiety. You just do. Try saying out loud, if necessary, Heart, I'm not my work. I'm not my weight. Anxiety does not add any time to my life. Anxiety does not change tomorrow. My future does not depend on this class, like it or not. And my future does not depend on him or her, like him or like her or not. I'm secure. I'm significant. I'm taken care of for life in Jesus. It's it's done. It's finished. Heart, 
you're not God, but you're also forgiven by Jesus for thinking you are God. Second piece of advice, lift up your head and really actually look around. This is actually really hard. Gaze with wonder at the absurdly extravagant beauty God gives wild grass. What the heck? Gawk with childlike curiosity at the way that the robins sing and swoop, careless in the care of God. Jesus is inviting us to be poets. He's inviting us to be painters. He's inviting us to be photographers, to see the almost casual way that God infuses the present with so much color, so much good taste, and so much energy and action. And all this leads me back to my, I would argue, devotional habit, but certainly a hobby, slow fiction reading. From my favorite character, let's move from there, Mr. Toad, to my favorite short story, Pigeon Feathers. Anybody? This story by John Updike, we meet a young teenage boy, David, like some of us here. David is struggling with a big life transition. Okay, He's, he's feeling the effects of it. His faith feels faltering. And nearly, like nearly all of us, David begins to feel anxious about his future. He begins to worry about what will happen to him. And into this deep hole of fear, David looks desperately for a little help, a gesture, a nod of certainty, a temporary shelter so he could be safe. But then in the midst of this, David stops listening to himself and he looks up, he lifts up his head and he looks. Let me read how the penny dropped for David, how his anxiety calmed, how his beliefs moved from his head to his heart, and how he was warmed from head to toe. Can I read that just really briefly? David had just killed a bunch of pigeons in a barn. Uh, and in the act of burying them, he, this is how John Updike describes it. He had never seen a bird this close before. The feathers were more wonderful than dog's hair, for each filament was shaped within the shape of the feather. And the feathers in it were trimmed to fit a pattern that flowed without error across the bird's body. He lost himself in the geometrical tides of the feathers now broadened and stiffened to make an edge for flight, now softened and constricted to cup warmth around the mute flesh. And across the surface of the infinitely adjusted, yet somehow effortless effortless mechanics of the feathers played idle designs of color, no two alike, designs executed, it seemed, in a controlled rapture, with a joy that hung level in the air above and behind him. Yet these birds bred in the millions and were exterminated as pests. Into the fragrant air, into the fragrant open earth, he dropped one broadly banded and slate shades of blue, and on top of it another mottled all over in rhythms of lilac and gray. The next was almost wholly white, but for a solemn uh, or salmon glaze at its throat. And as he fitted the last two, still pliant on the top, and stood up, crusty coverings were lifted from him and with a feminine slipping sensation along his nerves that seemed to give the air hands he was robed in this certainty that the god who lavished such craft upon these worthless birds would not destroy his whole creation by refusing to let david live forever would you pray with me Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for these words to us. Help us to savor them. 
Help us to drink them in. Lord, you reason with us. You show us beauty. I pray that you change us. Move us. Help us to see the world as you see it, just for a moment. But hopefully, better and better over our lives, wherever we are. In your name, Jesus. Amen.